Today's show is brought to you by IBM. Technology today has never been smarter, but smart only matters when you put it to good use. Together, we can build a smarter future for all of us. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Here's my friend and colleague Kara Swisher to tell you more. In a world of incessant data tracking, one tech startup is working to create a brand new internet, and that startup is Pied Piper. It's a totally decentralized, totally awesome, and too-good-to-be-true network, only on HBO's Silicon Valley. This tech could make the world a better place. Catch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and I'm here at Vox Media Headquarters in New York City. I won't be here for long because you're soon going to be listening to Ed Lee, my colleague, talk to Amy Chozik from the New York Times. It's excellent. You will enjoy it. But before we get started, here is my daily ask of you. If you like this podcast, please tell someone else about it. I've noticed some of you are tweeting. I appreciate it very much. Keep it up. We love it. Thank you so much. Okay, here is Recode's managing editor, Ed Lee, talking to Amy Chozik. Take it away, Ed. Thanks, Peter. I'm here with Amy Chozik, the author of Chasing Hillary. I'm going to read the full subhead so our listeners get an idea of what the book's really about. 10 years, two presidential campaigns, and one intact glass ceiling. Amy, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Sure. Look, let's, we're going to get this part out of the way, all right? So, okay. book came out. Yes. And uh, there's already been some blowback, but that's not a bad thing necessarily. The point is people are paying attention, notably Chelsea Clinton. Yes. Who... Uh, it was a series of tweets. Now it's become a whole thing. We call it Hairgate, or do we call it Hair Truthers, or what do we want to Keratin versus Keratin versus yes. There you go. So let's just get that out of the way. Okay. All right. Um, what happened? Um, look, you can't write a book about Hillary Clinton and not anticipate some blowback. So I always knew it was going to be something. I've covered this family for ten years um, for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. So I, you know, I know the way they. Uh, receive books, and I knew that there would be some blowback. I uh, kept incredibly detailed notes and audio and hundreds of reporters' notebooks stacked under my bed in case I ever wrote a book. And I also, which I think a lot of authors do not do, is I used my own money to hire a fact checker to review all of my reporting and sourcing and uh, and scrutinize everything. So I'm very confident in the reporting. Um, you know, in terms of Chelsea, I have a lot of respect for her. I write in the book when I was growing up in Texas that I identified with her. We were the same age, had same the same hair. Um, and then I think the question the the line in question I just want to read because I think there's a lot of there's some misinformation. Do you mind if I just read this little part? In fact, I was going to ask you to do that yeah. very thing. I, okay, it's funny great. because I was do- I was dog-earing these pages yeah. as I went through. I did not dog-ear that page until uh, you know the tweet started happening. So I yeah. got to go back and find this yeah. thing. So what does it what does it read? Okay, so first I'm just this is me growing up in Texas. Um, I even saw myself in Chelsea then. We were about the same age from neighboring southern states, both avid readers and uncomfortable in our own skin with smiles full of braces curls we couldn't control, and frilly dresses with bubbly shoulder pads. So then flash forward, this is like 2015, and I I run into Chelsea again. And I say, I no longer saw myself in Chelsea. She had grown into her celebrity, 
with flowing straight hair and a permanent strawberry glow. Chelsea told Elle magazine that in her early 20s, her curls just naturally subsided, an affront to frizzy-haired women everywhere. I also happened to know her New York hairdresser and a keratin job when I saw it. And uh, Chelsea tweeted out something to the effect of, well, if you had called me or fact-checked this damn thing, then, you know, you would have known that I I don't use keratin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, There's a fine line here, though, right? I mean— we should talk. I mean, this book is a memoir, right? right? It's not. Uh, it's not a documentary account necessarily, though. There's a lot of great details in it, uh, and as you pointed out, you used your reporter's notebooks, which right. were chock full of information. But a memoir, generally, you know, by definition, is your impression of events, right? Right. right. Uh, that happened to you and to others, right? Um, and what's really great about the book, I felt, is that this is an incredibly divisive election. Um, everyone has an opinion upon, mm-hmm. on it either way, but you are one of the few people to have a front row seat, right, to a part of it anyway. And so your impression of it is incredibly relevant, um, including keratin or no keratin, <laughs> whether it's a hair thing. Um, okay, so but that's I out think, of the way. But I mean, I, you know, that confuses people, and I, and I respect and understand that. You know, like in my author's note, I was trying to explain that this is nonfiction, but it's not journalism, which means there are details in the book. I did not reach out to everyone to say so-and-so declined to comment or so-and-so declined that this happened, um, you know, the way you would in a newspaper story. Um, And so I think it – I understand the questions people have because, you know, I think I I was trying something new. You know, people are saying, what about the factual problems in Fire and Fury? And, you know, this – isn't fire and fury <laughs> it has a the lot Michael of Wolf book, juicy right? yeah. tidbits in it but um but yeah I, I uh i you know i i of course anticipated blowback and like some authors are like you gotta hire a publicist i was like forget hiring a publicist i'm hiring a fact checker you know and and it's not cheap and they go through everything and so that's all yeah uh, we should also you know, know me as a reporter oh i know you. We, we we competed on the same story <laughs> so I'm, i know exactly intensely. yes how uh how good a reporter you, you are Thanks. so i I have no problem believing the story, right, uh, which I have here. We should also know on Twitter that I think, you know, it's it's created, you know, division on Twitter as well. I've seen people on Chelsea's side. I've seen people on your side. It's weird that there's a side, right? But that seems to be part of the way things go now, right, because of the Internet, because of Twitter, because of sort of this hyper-intense cycle of information. Everyone's just sort of picking side all of a sudden. Right? Yeah, and sometimes the context, I mean, always, almost always the context gets lost in the, in the mix. So I want to bring it back. What was your intention with the book? You say in, in, the, in, your, in your sort of preface you've always wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. I think any journalist, any someone who writes for a living wants to write a book, of course. So that part is obvious. But with this in particular, what was just the idea? What was the sort of the pitch ultimately when you went? Well, I was um, a, a real student of, of campaign books. You know, I read all of them and they were almost, actually, they were all, I should correct myself, they were all great men getting inside the campaigns of other great men. And so there was this confluence of events in 2016, the first female with a shot at the presidency, a largely female press corps. And so what I really wanted to do was like change the genre, like write a really female book. You know, as you know, there's stuff in there about fertility and my marriage and all of these ways that my job took over my life. My job happened to be covering the first woman with a shot at the presidency, but like every woman has had to make those choices. So I wanted to do a, 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 a female memoir and a, 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 I'm sorry, a female campaign book. And that meant kind of putting myself in it 
um, and as well as Hillary's press and kind of seeing her through those through that prism. You're 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 you are a central part of this. It's a memoir. It's your mm-hmm. your sense of it. So you are a big part of it. As you point out, your personal life, mm-hmm. you know, how you met your husband, mm-hmm. for one, uh, your concerns about, you know, can I get pregnant eventually? Will I be able to have a family? Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of your rise to the ranks of, mm-hmm. of journalism in general. Uh, I, I particularly loved uh, just your backstory of how you got into to the business. Give us a little bit of that. How did you— Oh, thanks, because I thought—I actually asked my editor. I'm like, are readers going to think this is like a weird tangent? But to me, it was important— I think in this election there was a lot of sense, and there's still the sense if you look at Twitter, of that the media is like in our ivory tower. We're all like elitists. So we didn't understand the country. Um, and so I wanted to give readers the context of of how hard I had it when I moved to New York from Texas with no job and no apartment, running around dropping off my clips from the Daily Texan, getting escorted out of the New York Times lobby when I was – you know, loitering. You just long. went. You just showed up at the New York Times building in the lobby. I would like physically drop my clips off. It was very naive, but I didn't have any contacts. I didn't know. I was very, you know, I was naive, and I didn't know. That's like, great. I, I love that. No, it's really sad. It's like somebody, one of the Bernie Bros, who was like always trolling me, said her life seems like a cross between working a sad episode of Working Girl and Midnight Cowboy, and I was like, exactly. How did she <laughs> You're know? like, that's exactly that's what I wanted exactly in my life. What my life was. <laughs> uh, you, you've always wanted to come to New York. Yeah. I love New York stories. I love these coming to New York stories, and you have a pretty classic one, I feel like. Um, what was your, so what did you do? What was your first, you know, how did you get into journalism at all? Um, yeah, I moved to New York, no job, no apartment. I was uh, crashing, like, with a boyfriend on his couch in Fort Greene. Um, I was, uh, at first I was temping insurance agencies, there nonprofits. Wow. And then in between temping, I was, like, Doing going on job interviews and like I could name twelve publications, some of which no longer exist, uh, that would you know didn't even call me back or interviewed me and had no interest. Uh, an editor at Cosmo asked me if I was a makeup junkie, and I'm like, as you can look at my face now, Ed, that is pretty self-explanatory that I'm not. Um, and so my first foot in the door was a, a position that no longer exists at Condé Nast, the magazine publisher uh, called. They were called we were called Rovers. Rovers, yes, yes. and we were basically oh, yeah. in, it was an internal temping age. It was a step up from outside temps. You were like an internal temp and you had six months to fill in all their different magazines. And then at the end of six months, if anyone offered, you could make relationships, you know, have coffees with people if they would, which normally you were fetching coffee, not having coffees. But, um, and get a job. If you don't get a job after six months, then it's done and they replenish the program. And what were you doing? You were were basically, as you said, fetching coffee, getting people's dry cleaning. You're almost like the assistants to the assistants. I was the assistant to the assistant. I mean, like, that's bad. Yeah. um, No, I have, yeah. So, uh, and you were getting put in different magazines all the time so nobody knew you or nobody knew your name and um and I always wanted like I was like the new Connie Nass publishes the New Yorker I'm going to get to go to the like the New Yorker never needed rovers <laughs> the people that needed rovers were like brides magazine and house and garden the places you didn't want to necessarily write for not that I that I did not want to write for and so I was doing um yeah, I was a rover. I learned a lot, but not necessarily what I thought I would learn when I moved to New York. Um, for instance, I was—I have some stuff in the book, but I was um, wearing. I used to wear one of those plastic banana clips. Yeah, they were like big in the early yeah, aughts. Everyone, it was yeah, fine. Everyone we didn't have one. them, right? Yeah. And so I got off the elevator once. It was a packed elevator, and the elevator doors were closing. And and I hear a girl go, "Okay, who told her she could wear her hair like that?" <laughs> 
And I was like, what? There's something wrong with this? That's, um, that's yeah, that's a very Devil Wears Prada oh, moment. Yeah. It's, a real, it's a real moment. It's a real thing. Yeah, and I was from Texas. Enough. Like, I didn't know, and I'd never spent more than $30 on a pair of jeans. Like, shoes were nine west. Like, I didn't, this world. And, and it was the first world that I had in New York. So I thought, like, this is what New York is like. Meanwhile, not knowing this is like this bizarre, rarefied, Connie Nass fashion world of before the financial crisis when they had money and black cars to the Hamptons. Um, and so then I, I eventually got a job as the foreign news assistant at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and as soon as I walked into the newsroom, this was like after 9-11 when the Journal's newsroom had been like bombed out. Right and, near, yeah, right near where the trade towers exactly, were. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I just thought like everyone was frumpy and brilliant. And I thought like, oh, th- I've found my people. This is great. My banana clip is just fine here. So frumpy and brilliant is, that's your people. Well, so we're, I, I, we're immediately, good yeah. I immediately like loved the place and, um, you know, and yeah, and felt like I fit in much better there. Newsrooms are great, aren't they? They it's are just, great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always a bastion of like no shit, like tell me what's going on as opposed to the whole put-ons of like what you normally see. Right, like I don't care if you're dressed like the Unabomber as long as you can deliver the story. Amy, I have more questions for you, but we're going to take a quick break so Peter Kafka can tell us about some of our sponsors. We'll be back after this. Thanks, Ed. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Here's Kara Swisher again with a word about HBO's Silicon Valley. Wired Magazine says HBO's Silicon Valley captures all the dick moves and dick jokes. I would agree with that, and I enjoy them quite a bit. It happens to be eerily timely as startup founder Richard Hendricks pivots this season to launch a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. It turns out that the road to an autonomous peer-to-peer network, whatever that means, is paved with misguided car purchases, stealth acquisitions of Pizza App, and a lot of public puking, as well as an ICO. No one said launching a startup was easy. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. We live in a world that's creating AI-enabled everything, a world with more IoT devices than people. Today, technology has never been smarter. But smart only matters when you put it to work where it matters. When we put smart to work, we can help save species, increase crop yields, and make progress, not just for a few of us, for all of us. So let's get to it. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Back to you, Ed. Thanks, Peter. So you were a foreign correspondent mm-hmm. for a while. Actually, you were in Japan for yeah. a bit. You learned some Japanese even. So like, There you go. Look at that. Yeah. I love that. I remember when <laughs> we, we first we met. We spoke some Japanese. Yes, you were speaking Japanese to me. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? <laughs> Didn't we talk to the some Sony executive? We talked. Oh, Kaz Hirai, yes, the CEO of Sony. Yes, he was like, I speak English, guys. So we should let the audience <laughs> in on what we're talking yeah. about for a second here. Yeah. So we, we met um, at Sun Valley, which is the annual mogul retreat. Right. It's where like guys like Rupert Murdoch and, you know, Sumner Redstone and all the big media moguls would meet. And now tech guys like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey also. Uh, it's a real confab. And like, what's crazy is that it's like it's kind of like paparazzi for moguls. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the role we you played as journalists here. Yeah. Just like you're behind the tensor barriers yeah. and like we're literally yelling out questions. And like that's fine for like, you know big newsmaking things, but these guys are just CEOs, right? right? And right. they're not going to tell you anything. So right. yelling out, hey, what's going on? It's really humiliating. Your it's yeah. very humiliating. Yes. Um, and the more humiliating part is, remember if we remember this, yeah. but, you know, we're not allowed in the bar. Right, right? we weren't allowed. So it's a resort. And we were spending money to stay there. Exactly right. So it's like, it's at a resort, and, you know, they don't stop people from booking rooms. So reporters book rooms. 
alongside these big moguls, but they close off the bar. Right. Which was the best part of it, right? Right, or one of the few best parts of it uh, that were available to us, and so we literally were out in the lobby. They like roped us into a separate place, right? and yeah. we'd sort of we'd sort of yell out to, "Hey, can, can you bring me a drink, please?" Like we'd actually ask the waiters to like, "Can you take our order?" Yeah, and wait for people to come out to stumble out, and we could sort of hound them with questions. And sometimes they'd entertain us. I know, but most of the time they were kind of jerks about it, weren't they? No, of all the humiliating experiences as a reporter, that was that was very high up there. Which. Is pretty high, given yeah. the fact of what I read yeah. <laughs> in terms of what you want, you know, what campaign reporters generally go through, which is pretty. That pretty is tough. true, but you also feel like the stakes are higher in covering an election, so the humiliation is, and also like the humiliation is more widely endured. It's like this is the way it is, right? This is the world. You go right. to those briefings and White House briefings, and they like give you nothing, and you feel like you're groveling for morsels. But your humiliation as a journalist then is really like the public's humiliation, right? Because mm. You're there to represent the people, yeah, right, in terms yeah. of here are the questions that yeah. people should know, you know, try to get answered. And if they're not going to answer it, it's not just your question they're not answering. It's, right. you know, the public, right. really. Um, okay, but back uh, to uh, you, were, you were a foreign correspondent. You were in Japan. Yes. And then from there you got plopped into Iowa to cover Hillary's first campaign yeah. in 08. Yeah. That's kind of crazy going from one to the other. How, how did that happen exactly? Um, yeah, my so my editor who hired me on the foreign desk uh, to be the news assistant was uh, eventually hired me to be a foreign correspondent in Japan. And I, you know, I speak fluent Spanish. I knew no Japanese. I started, I, I learned some, as you know. Very nice. <laughs> but, uh, but um, and he thought, I mean, his perspective on coverage was that a fresh perspective is important. You know, you have foreign correspondents who stay in these places for decades, years, have lives there. And some of the things that our stories to Western readers might not be stories to my, like my colleagues who'd lived there so long and my Japanese colleagues were like, of course the toilets play music. You know, like everything I saw in Japan was a story to me. Because it was, it was new to you. Because they right. all, like those stories grow on trees. Yeah, exactly. And if they're new to me, they're new to our readers. So that was his perspective. It didn't make my life very easy there. But, but it's, it's actually pretty classic. I love, yeah. that's like a great way. I mean, reporters don't do that enough, right? right. Like you're on the beat forever. Yeah. And you miss the stories, yeah. right? You're so entrenched. You're so yeah. ensconced in the, the minutiae that you're like, well, that's a known thing. Right. Well, it's known to you, right. but it's not known to normal people. Exactly. Right? Or it's like impressing your like other friends. on the, Like, I need to scoop this because somebody else is going to. And you sort of forget that, like, does a reader really care about? So here's what I love okay. about this, pa- this okay. part of your book. I love many parts of your book. Thanks. But this in particular, and this is a very journalism point of view thing. But, like, when you first went to cover it, mm-hmm. um, this was one of the first sort of campaign appearances that Hillary made. Mm-hmm. And we're all at an event. You, the whole media scrum is there. Yeah. And you stand up. She comes out. You stand up. And what do you do? I cheered. You start so cheering and clapping, right? <laughs> <laughs> is the guy from the Chicago Tribune, was it, like yeah. tugging on your arm? My friend so, Jason George was like, dude. And I just met him, and he was like, dude, you can't do that. Like, dude, what are you doing? You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, I was, like, swept up. It was, like, my, my first—I'd never seen—oh, no, I had, I had seen Hillary. I met her. I wrote—then I met her as a as a teenager in Texas. But, like, I'd never been to a political rally like that, and everybody was so excited. And I got, like, oh, everyone's standing up. And then I look around, and I'm like, oh, my God, that was a major faux pas. So here's the thing. So we're talking about this. Like, yeah. we know, like, that's funny and yeah. it's a faux pas. But I don't know. I think readers and listeners may not necessarily mm. get that, though, mm. right? It's like— 
as journalists, yeah. you can't be part of the story. That's right. the whole point. You had, and that's what your friend was haranguing you about. It's like, you can't do that, meaning right. you can't, you know, you can't be on either side of this. Right. right? You have to be, and actually I learned that in 2008, even, especially I think when I switched over to Obama and you saw these crowds that were like totally swept up in the phenomenon. And I sort of saw Obama differently because I, you know, seeing him as a reporter, you see the warts and all. Person, He's a person, yes, exactly. Right. And so I thought, and I looked at this crowd and I was like, gosh, you really like cede your right or your ability to be really swept up and excited about a candidate, not just because you want to project nonpartisanship, but because you see them for who they are. And they all have pluses and minuses and negatives and positives. And that's what you need to see as a journalist, right? Yeah. You can't be swayed either way. And that's, that's, but that's the eternal struggle, right? Like yeah. you, a big part of the, the tension in this book is you and what you call the guys, yeah, right? Her, yeah. her press handlers, mm-hmm. her her aides mm-hmm. who are there to sort of stand in front of the press yeah. basically and spin you guys. Yeah. And you know they're trying to sp- spin you. They know they're trying to spin you. And it's just this constant conflict. And you kind of have to wonder, and especially the way you frame it here, like what's the point of all that, mm-hmm. right? If mm-hmm. you know you're – if the system is set up to be antagonistic at the start right. like that, in a known way, you're just gaming each other kind of. Isn't that part of the concern? I do think you're right that it's like a cycle. You know, it's like you control everything. The, the, the handlers control everything. We have to write something. So then you end up, like I write, that we had stories counting Hillary's head nods during policy roundtables. And in turn, her, she and her campaign think we're like, you know, vapid morons, right? You know, it's, well, it's the cycle. It is a cycle, but it's also, yeah. like as a reporter, yeah. I've, I've been in that same situation of, mm-hmm. well, if you're not going to talk to me, yeah. I'm going to find something else to write You're going to fill the right. vacuum. Exactly. Right. And it's going to be head nods or it's going to be the smallest yeah. little thing and that's Didn't a headline. Didn't like Peter Chernin go whitewater rafting, like knock someone off a whitewater raft? I mean, and I don't that wanna... was the story yeah. for like, because he didn't <laughs> say anything to us. Yeah, exactly. give us something. We'll write about that, right? Exactly. Um, so that's another way of sort of pointing out this other thing, which I think a lot yeah. of people don't realize and that you really highlight in the book early on, mm-hmm. which is, the Clintons had this long-standing theory that the New York Times mm-hmm. was out to get them. Mm-hmm. That, and going all the way back to Howell Raines when he was editor, mm-hmm. uh, a man from the South who sort mm-hmm. of saw Bill Clinton as sort of a rival, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not true, of course, right? Well— this is something that I think surprises people. I mean, certainly, like, my family in Texas was like, the New York Times, the liberal New York Times out to get the Clintons. What are you talking about? Yeah, aren't they in the pot for them? In, Isn't in, that the, what they in the tank, exactly. Yeah. And even I, you know, when I was put on this beat, like, really underestimated the, like, decades of baggage between the Clintons' world and, and the Times. Like, I, I was naive about that. I thought, like— hey, this is going to be great. You know, I knew I'd t- write some tough stories, but I didn't know. At one point, the guys, Hillary's press handlers, were trying to, like, kind of talk me out of, uh, I don't know which story it was, but they said, um, they expressed, like, they, they had, like, feigned concern, and they said, I just don't want you to become the Jeff Girth of your generation. So Jeff Girth was a reporter who broke the Whitewater story. I was, like, 12 when that happened. <laughs> and you you're know? like, wait a minute, I was who like, is that? And you're kind of ticking through. You're right, like, yeah. right, yeah. And so it was uh, It was really, like, it was, they were very much stuck in the, in the night. I mean, it was like a time warp. It was like it was like Whitewater was yesterday, but the endorsements, all the positive endorsements that we that the paper had given Hillary, like didn't exist. And so I had to educate myself very you know early on about this like relationship. And 
it, it wasn't just Hal Raines. It was his. It was everyone. It was always since. passed on. Right. It Whoever was with, running okay, the times. So it started with Hal Raines, who was also from the South, and and there was this conspiracy or this theory in um, in Hillary's world and Bill's world that like he had this white Southern rivalry with Bill Clinton. That he's like sort of saw Bill Clinton as like less than him, and there was this like white man Southern rivalry between these two most most powerful figures in there. Um, and so that was that. And then it was like when Jill Abramson was the executive editor. It was like, well, these two women, she has it. It was Jill versus Hill, they used to say, and she has it out. She obviously has left, the, you know, ever since she got fired from the paper and has been writing for The Guardian, she's been sympathetic to Hillary and I think been honest about having how she had a lot of respect um, for her the whole time. But there was, there was always a narrative. And the other thing that struck mm-hmm. me, too, in terms of you're writing all these stories, mm-hmm. they're factual stories, and you're getting hell for it from the campaign. Mm-hmm. Now— that's understandable when it's like, I didn't like that story exists, yeah. but it seemed to be deeper than that. It seemed to be like, why are you trying to hurt us, mm-hmm. right? And you, there's a point in the book where you sim- simply say, well, I'm sorry that it hurt you, but these stories are true, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's, what do you think that is? Like, why is it, and it's not just within politics, but just everywhere mm-hmm. um, in almost a- journalism altogether that there's this backlash against, you know, as soon as, even if they might acknowledge that it's true, they're like, well, that you printed it made it something else. Like you're trying to hurt us. Yeah. You know, that's such a I weird think that was even more pronounced when it was Trump, you know, when she was running against Trump. It was just like, how could you do this to us? Like the guy, the other guy is so beyond the pale. Right. And I think I, I think if you're, if I'm guessing right, you're referring to like the Hamptons Hillary and the Hamptons story right. in the final weeks of August. I mean, she basically disappeared after a very good convention when she was 10 points ahead and went to fundraise in the Hamptons. And I wrote a story that, you know, was universally hated by her, her campaign and her supporters. But it was true. Like she did go into, you know, and it, it doesn't always look pretty. And um, and uh, yeah, I, I had learned to anticipate the backlash, but the idea that sort of, well, stop writing those stories. This guy she's running against, you know, he's bragging about sexually assaulting women. And the irony here is, of course, we're hearing about, you know, the backlash against the press with, in the Trump administration mm-hmm. with, you know, failing New York Times, fake mm-hmm. news, et cetera. And meanwhile, you know, as you're covering the Clintons uh, for 10 years plus, they've had the same sense that, oh, the New York Times is out to get us. It's just less well-known or it's less publicized from their end. Yeah, and I would say, to their credit, it's less dangerous. I mean, to have a president decry a free press and call out my colleagues on Twitter and, and you know, and the way he talked about doing away, the way he talks about suing reporters and doing away with First Amendment, I mean, that is much more dangerous proposition. To me, the Clintons uh, was, like, within the confines of, like, political machines. The usual you know, sort of, yeah, backbiting it was a more right. extreme because Hillary had built up so much scar tissue and grudges about the media, some real and some imagined. But um, and so it was. I think it was a little more amplified. But I don't want to like equate the way they control the press to what Trump is doing. What he's doing is he's speaking it, which is a completely different thing. I think so. Right. Yes. Yeah. I think it definitely. I mean, Hillary, like to her credit, like would travel the world and support First Amendment, you know, support journalists' free speech in, in countries all over the world. I have more questions, yeah. but we're going to take a quick break okay. so Peter Kafka can tell us some more about our sponsors. We'll be back right after this. Thanks, Ed. Today's show is brought to you by LinkedIn. Here is Vox Media's Nishat Kurwa to tell you about LinkedIn marketing solutions. When it comes to marketing your business, it's all about reaching the right audience at the right time. So if you want to target your customers where they're engaging every day and when they're ready to make a decision, LinkedIn can help. 
When you advertise on LinkedIn, you have the opportunity to build long-term relationships with your customers. Relationships that often translate into high-quality leads, website traffic, and higher brand awareness. The first step? Talking to the right audience. LinkedIn has the marketing tools to help you target your customers with precision, down to their job title, company name, and industry. Four out of five customers who are on LinkedIn are decision makers at their companies, so you're building relationships that really matter. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash media. That's linkedin.com slash media for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, this is Dave Tack, co-host of Polygon's Quality Control, our podcast where we talk to an editor after they review a new game, a movie, or a piece of gear, and we allow them to add a little bit of extra context and insight, like why did they feel the way they did, or what do they wish they'd been able to discuss in more depth in their review. This week, Susanna Polo and I are discussing Avengers Infinity War, and oh boy, is there a lot to talk about. Listen to the episode by searching for Quality Control wherever you're listening to this podcast, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We're here with Chasing Hillary author Amy Chozik. We're talking about the New York Times, the Clintons, the White House generally. One thing I wanted to bug you about, this has to do with being on the bus. Mm -hmm. So there is, you know, you are a foreign correspondent and then you went to being a campaign reporter. There's something that David Remnick, I remember saying when, you know, as a foreign correspondent, your job is largely to stand witness. Yeah. Right? That's your, you're just seeing there and reporting what you're seeing. seems like campaign reporting is very similar in that way. Um, but at the same time, like, because of the internet now, because everything is streamed, and you sort of mentioned this in your book, like, do you need to be there kind of a thing? How has that changed? So you were yeah. there in 08, and then yeah. you were there uh, in this recent campaign. What were the big differences? How much of, like, the internet affected change from one to the other? I think it drastically changed the role of the campaign reporter. But not only that, I think Trump could not have been elected without those changes. And so there was a real sense that, like, why should I be on this bus where they're controlling your every word, where it's impossible to write because you're being shuffled on and off of buses? I mean, I was, like, always trying to write stories on my lap in the back of a motorcade before. Um, when you can live stream everything, I mean, Twitter and live streaming and a candidate who gave us almost no access, you know, really, I think a lot of newsrooms were questioning, why are we doing this? It's one thing, I think, for networks that need to have a you know, they need the a visual, camera there. Right. They need yeah. the visual. Um, and also, I think, you know, it's protective. People still think, what if something happens? What if something happens? Although I would argue that when the press is on a separate plane, when the press is on a bus, you know, in Sioux City, when Hillary's giving a speech in, you know, Des Moines because the logistics didn't work out for us to be at both events, like, then, then it's not even serving its protective function. You know, there would be times when we were on the bus in Iowa streaming her speech in another city in Iowa. Isn't that just crazy? That was I was right. reading that thinking yeah. like, wow, like this is just it's just the postmodern bizarreness of that. Is exactly. So weird. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that because I think, and this is like something it's a little inside baseball, but like a sub theme of the book is like the decline of campaign reporting. Um, not just, and I don't, I'm not putting that on the press corps. I'm just the, the the changing nature of the job, and like it was like suddenly we had all this all female press corps, and I say call it a slap in slap in the face from the patriarchy or a stroke of bad luck. But by the time women, you know, became the by, by the time it became the girls on the bus, the role of the bus and the media ecosystem had been vastly diminished. Well, one thing that I think really, really sort of brings it to mm -hmm. bear, the book is brilliant. Thank it's you. got a lot of great detail, and it 
brings to detail, brings to light all the things you didn't read about during the actual campaign. This is the kind of stuff that reporters all talk about in the bar after the presser, Mm -hmm. but that they never write. Mm -hmm. It's like what Nick Denton always talks about, why (laughs) the whole reason for Gawker. But is there room for that? Shouldn't there be that kind of writing and reporting as things are happening? Do you think could you— if there were a sort of an outlet or if the New York Times said, hey, you know, we're going to do something completely different here. Mm. We want this type of story on the road as Hunter things are Hunter S. Thompson in real time. Yes. Ooh, like, I like is it. Is that possible? Can you do that now, do you think? Hmm, that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, the, the New York Times review of my book said it was like a director's cut, you know, of, of the campaign coverage. Um, I wonder if you can do that. For one, I think it would be sort of hard, like, like – I'm giving give an example. In 2008, Matt Taibbi, like, was pretending to cover Obama, but really we kind of heard, picked up that he was actually doing a story in the traveling press. Right. And everyone got, like, paranoid and, like, no one wanted to drink Chardonnay in front of him because it was going to end up in the story. Right. And so, like, I feel like if you knew that that person was there and that was their role, you did, you then you wouldn't. wouldn't get the organic experience. Like, I took a lot of notes thinking I wanted to write a book, but, like, if it was happening in real time, I just wonder, and you're like, oh, that's the person that's going to be... And like, they probably wouldn't kick you off the bus. They'd be all gonzo on us. <laughs> exactly right. They would like not, you know, I think there wouldn't be an organic. I mean, even like Vogue did a story on the girls on the bus. And when the Vogue writer was there, like and one of my friends was like, Amy, stop drinking so much Perrier. It's going to be in the story. Like it was like <laughs> we were very paranoid about everything. Um, I think that there's that weird like Heisenberg blitz that happens, right? If they know that you're that you're observing this and they're going to not want to do it. Right. I mean, beyond just sort of the inside baseball part of it, though, I do think what was really illuminating is how you evaluated sort of the crowds, how you evaluate her actual stump speech, how it changed uh, in a way that was just more sort of colloquial and vivid, right, than you would see in a standard sort of report, um, even if it were an A1 thing. And I think I wonder how, you know, that might have actually affected the campaign too. Mm -hmm. They might have reacted differently. Mm. They might have actually adjusted differently. Mm. Who knows what? Um, But because there's this kind of, tacit agreement, right, of this is how you do this, this is how we do that, and we know what it ends up looking like, sort of, you know, there's almost like a stalemate, right? Yeah, And yeah. breaking news, you know, you want to break news, you break through the stalemate, that's what, one way around it. Um, but I feel like there's so much energy placed in something that like, well, okay, I know what's going to happen, kind of a thing. Um, so more gonzo reporting. I mean, I think it's important – like in retrospect, writing the book, it was important to be at so many rallies. Like I noticed things like I write when there was like a weird – that nobody knew – caucus night in Iowa when she didn't know what the results were. But she had to give a speech and it was like totally awkward. And she like straightens her jacket and like – and I write that it was like this fidgety gesture that I almost never saw Hillary do. And so like there was – looking back, value in seeing the same thing all the time. I mean, I do go on this, like, sort of riff about how she was in Iowa, how she got... You, you campaign so frequently and so intimately in Iowa that, like, you, she developed her speech, you know. She, 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 she pulled off jokes and said things in Iowa that I never heard anywhere else. Well, and that's the thing. You, the yeah. way you recount it, the way you show it, actually, and there's a lot of showing and more than telling, which I thought was really helpful. I could see it. You could see, like, how she's crafting her message and trying things out and how a lot of things aren't landing, which then sort of would give you as the reader, as the citizen, a clear understanding of like, wow, like they don't know what they're doing. You know? <laughs> I mean, we wrote some of that, but some of that's harder to see unless you know that when they get to New Hampshire, they recalibrate. Like I had that added data, like writing the book, you have the added data point of like, oh, here's the list. And I devote four pages in my book of the 84 slogans that they, they were focus trusting group. Yeah. They were te- but like we didn't know that at the time. We just knew, like, something's not working and they keep getting new signage and 
No, it, it definitely feels like sort of, you know, a PowerPoint from hell type of presentation in terms of the way you list it. Um, so going back to your intention for the book, mm-hmm. um, how much of it was that she was tagged because no matter how unlikable or uncharismatic she may have come across, she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of your intention with the book is to sort of write this memoir about first woman candidate for, you know, possible president mm-hmm. and the female press corps. It, it really had sort of mm-hmm. flipped. How much did she get tagged? Like, how much did misogyny play a part from what you saw from the campaign trail, from the the voters, the everydays, as you mm-hmm. pointed out? Mm-hmm. I think a lot. I mean, I think we couldn't. I think, I think we need distance to really assess that, and probably history to assess how much misogyny played into Hillary Clinton's career because she's still, you know, being attacked. She's still being vilified, and and there's a lot of people who say it's not. It's not because she's a woman. It's because she's that. This is what I always heard on the campaign trail. I'd vote for a woman. I want to see a woman president, just not that woman. And so, you know, I started thinking, well, why is she that woman? Is it because of 30 years of sexist attacks have made her that woman? Um, and they would say, no, it's because of that Whitewater thing and it's because of Benghazi. Or they, they might. And so I think it's very difficult, like, living through history to also parse, like, how much of how we perceive Hillary is these storms that she and her husband have weathered and how much of it is gender. I think we need some perspective, but I also think that once we have that perspective, we'll realize it was mostly gender. Mostly <laughs> like, that gender. is my, like, if I had to guess how history would view Hillary, she's going to be this, I had this, I had, I, I know somebody, some people on Twitter after she lost said, well, after all that, Hillary Clinton's a footnote in history. And like, I actually don't think so, I think, and it's not just because I wrote a book about her, I think she is going, her career is going to be such a symbol of how we viewed women and powerful women in this kind of period of life, that period of American history, that it's going to be incredibly important and studied for decades because I think it was a lot of misogyny. And the fact that the fact that the last chapter of her career, and you know, who knows what else she'll do, but the last chapter of her political career was up against this candidate who was bragging about sexually assaulting women and had a known history of insulting women. It was just such a confluence of forces. It was, I mean, to look on that debate stage and see the first woman nominee against the first openly bragging about misogyny was a striking, a striking look at our society, a striking barometer of where we are. It was historical, for sure. Yeah. Um, This book is also about journalism, what it means to do journalism this day and age. I feel like a lot of people generally don't understand how journalism works. Mm -hmm. They think you write a story as part of an agenda as opposed to, well, that's what happened or that's what the facts are. That's what's significant right now. Um, did you hope part of it that the book would sort of explain and also dispel myths about, like, here's how it works? I don't think I sat down thinking, like, I want this to be, like, a primer of what German- journalism is. But I did think, like, I have to be honest. Like, I can't sit down and write a memoir and be like, we did everything perfect in 2016. And, the you know, I didn't want to write it from that like that ivory tower like I wanted to write about really how it is I mean a lot of people have said like god it sounds glamorous but it's not at all <laughs> no you're great you're very detailed yeah. and you're very upfront about how, how it works and I, I mean yeah. that in, the, in the best possible way I mean there's a lot of nuance too there's a lot of inside baseball stuff in terms mm-hmm. of you know here's my nut graph mm-hmm. here's the lead that I mm-hmm. wrote here's the positive the negative version mm-hmm. as journalists I know what all that is but you know, I don't think regular readers understand like, oh, wow, like that's an interesting process that that's how you go through. Yeah, and, I hope that's eye-opening to people. Well, that's going to lead me to my the last part. Okay. I think this is the most difficult part, right? So this is that you have a whole chapter, you know, mm-hmm. how you became an unwitting agent of I love how dog-eared your Russian. In, yes, I really I read that. through this. Yeah, look at this. Makes me happy. Um, I, it's marked up. And, I'll get you a new one. <laughs> no, I like the okay, marked up, right? Okay. I love 
doing that. It's an um, early, early edition. So this, towards the end, mm-hmm. how I became an unwitting agent of Russian intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, set that up for us. What happened here? Yeah, so this is something, it was, was December, it was right after the election. I didn't know what my new beat was going to be. We were all sort of in this election haze, you know, like what just happened? How did we all miss it? And I'm on the F train on my way to the newsroom, the Times newsroom, and I'm reading a front page story that my colleagues wrote that ended up winning a Pulitzer, a great TikTok of how the Russians pulled off the perfect hack on the DNC and John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman's emails in order to disturb our democracy and help Donald Trump. So I'm reading the story. I get to a line that says, turning all reporters, including the Times, who covered the emails into de facto agents of Russian intelligence. And that's a story your colleagues wrote. Right. That appeared in the New York Times. Right. Front page. Front page, citing the New York Times. Right. Well, so the timing of those email leaks are sort of interesting too, mm-hmm. right? Because just that day, was it, or around that time, yeah. it was the Access Hollywood tape. That was a crazy day. Donald Trump on the bus with, um, who's the guy? I forget, Access Billy Hollywood. Bush. Billy Bush. Yeah. Talking about grabbing by the, you yeah. know, and yeah. uh, everyone's thinking like, this is it. It's over. There's yeah. no way. Right. But then the WikiLeaks emails dropped the same day. Oh, or just within, like right after that. Within minutes yes. of that, right? Yes. That being the story. So, yeah. you know. Newsrooms everywhere are like, what in the world is happening, Yeah, right? Um, and so I think part of the, the context around, like, the unwitting agent mm-hmm. is, well, clearly that happened at that time to deflect, mm-hmm. right? Or that was the, th- the thinking anyway when that thing dropped. And you all played along, right? We, ex- we, we amplified those emails. Now, there was a debate over whether you should bother reporting on these emails, yeah. right? What was the debate about? Why was Well, I never argued— that we shouldn't cover them. Okay. And I think that's been like a little misinterpreted maybe. Um, I just think like these cyber attacks are going to continue to happen um, by foreign adversaries who want to interfere in our elections. And I just think newsrooms should debate how we present those you know, stolen documents to readers. I mean, of course, there's newsworthiness. I mean, in her Wall Street speeches, we'd been trying to get those speeches for years, and finally there we they got are, them, right. and, they're, and they give a glimpse into what Hillary really thinks, and it's important to confirm and contextualize them. And so, like, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm actually very glad that there's uh, been debates happening. That's, that's sort of what I wanted to see. So part of the debate, as I understand it, mm-hmm. is, first of all, you're right, it's news, it's out there, yeah. right? Um, the concern is, well... These are stolen documents, mm-hmm. effectively, mm-hmm. right? And journalists don't steal things. That's mm-hmm. part of, you know, we do our damnedest to get them, mm-hmm. get people to give us things. That's the process. But if something's stolen, that's, well, it's a different thing. The added factor, though, is like the internet exists, right? right? So even if they were stolen, the fact that they're out there, just right. free-floating, anyone right. to look at, right. probably begs context, right? Begs reporting, begs, well, here's what's happening here. Here's what's significant. Here's something that's not significant. That seems to be a relatively easy answer. Mm-hmm. But again, it doesn't seem to be easy either, right? How? Wh- why was that such a hard right, thing? Right. I mean, I think it's an easier answer if you say, okay, someone, uh, a Russian agent broke into Hillary Clinton's Brooklyn campaign headquarters and stole John Podesta's files off his desk and handed them to us. Would we have a larger... Right crisis of conscience if it was because it's just you it's not just free floating out there they're not already out there but like i look at like and i don't think this is necessarily the answer but but when the sony hack happened you and i were covering media and i think the policy a lot of newsrooms had was we're not going to report on the salacious details 
but we'll report on what's relevant. The bigger issue, we'll, we'll report what's relevant, and and we'll report on the fact that there was this cyber attack. So I um I, I have those emails on my laptop still. I've downloaded all of them, and I'll search them every once in a while just to see, like, you know, oh, wait, what happened with this one thing? And yeah. even if it's just, like, three or four or five years ago, it's interesting to go back. Completely. I haven't reported on a lot of that stuff just mm. because, well, that's kind of history now. Mm. It's no longer relevant. Um, but, yeah, that's still a concern, right? Mm. That's still something I kind of think about in the back of my head. Is this – should we use it this way? Mm-hmm. But, again, the fact that it's out there, the fact that the internet exists right. is sort of one of those things yeah. that sometimes makes it easier. But then also just you're like, well, am I just feeling this thing that shouldn't be happening as well? Right. right. I think, like, that chapter is more about, like, my personal conflict. You know, it wasn't – declaring that we did the right thing or the wrong thing. It was just like a lot of, there have been a lot of like, what about her emails? And you overcovered her emails. And I think those are legitimate concerns. But like the bigger concern for me looking ahead to election coverage in 2018 and 2020 and beyond is this question of like, there's a fine, there's a line between salacious and not covering at all. You always chose the byline though, as you say. I always chose the byline. I'm the same way. I always choose the byline. Um, I this mean, is, it's like I was voracious over bylines. Yummy bylines. Well, that's how you tell real journalists, right? That's, I guess. that's the way it goes. This is a very entertaining book. Thank you. Am I going to see this on Netflix or HBO or Hulu From in some form? your lips to Reese Witherspoon's ears, man. There, or Apple, yes, exactly. She's yeah. doing big deals with Apple now for these things. I, yeah, it, I, I it seems so. tailor-made for that. I hope so. What did Axios say? Like, almost famous meets game change? Oh, <laughs> that's the log line, that's right? My, that's my elevator pitch. Well, you know what? When that happens, you come back and you talk to us about that and see what it's like to turn your story into sort of Hollywood fiction. I will. I will. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thanks, Amy, for coming on the podcast. And thanks to you all for listening. As Peter Kopka always says, we only ask one thing from you in exchange for this free podcast. Tell someone about it. Post about it on Facebook. Email it to your friends. Tweet about it. Whatever. And if you like the sound of my voice, then go check out last week's episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Kara Swisher and I devoted the whole episode to the AT&T-Time Warner merger, which is $85 billion deal. Once again, that's too embarrassed to ask. You can find it wherever you find the show. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They sell those ads so that you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits the show, and to the producers of the show, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. Peter will be back next week. We'll see you then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new-collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-TECH schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash P-TECH. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. HBO's Silicon Valley is as timely as ever as Pied Piper founder Richard Hendricks pivots to build a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. But as the saying goes, new internet, new problems. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. I watch it every week.